So, Robert, first off, congratulations for your um, uh, experience, recognizing that it wasn't an experience that uh, fell upon you, but rather it was something that you, you created and that you know that you can create that. You did it once. You can do it again. And that you had mentioned that uh, the key ingredient for that was changing your thought from unwholesome thoughts to wholesome thoughts. This is a major point, and that the Buddha um, talks about it in dozens of suttas. Mostly he's talking about it, he's mentioning it from the perspective of the hindrances to be removed. And a lot of people get that, but they don't understand the immediacy or the need or the necessity of it. and yet in uh, a few suttas, uh, it really is the, the important point. One is, in fact, sutta number 19, which is uh, the name of the sutta is two kinds of thought. <laughs> Immediately, you get the idea of what he's talking about there. There are two ways of thinking, wholesome thoughts and unwholesome thoughts. And we're in the habit of, of having whole, uh, unwholesome thoughts generally because our society requires it of us. Now, when we're talking about unwholesome thoughts in this regard, we can talk about it in the sense of um, uh, a term that is familiar and well-loved in uh, West, in the English language, and then that is the word to be critical that in fact we even hire critics to write articles in newspapers when they had newspapers. I guess now every blog is a critic. Sure. All right. So uh, in the Buddhist comp- uh, dispensation, uh, critical thinking is unwholesome sure. because it generally has ill will, I did. I like that. I don't like that. This was good. That was bad. I give it a score. All of that is the critical thinking. And you can see um, the second noble truth at work there. Mm. Greed and ill will. I want this. I like this. I don't like that. This is good. This is bad. And that wholesome thoughts are uh, non-critical but rather nurturing and accepting. And that uh, I don't find, I don't, I don't spend much time on Reddit, but when I do, I find a lot of critical thought in all of the Buddhist um, places that, that are visited. Sure. And so. Typical internet, you know, yeah. kind of internet board chatter. Yeah. Right. How how is it that uh, that this whole point is missed? That we should be on the internet, on Reddit, congratulating each other for our uh, insights, congratulating each other for our uh, uh, newfound wisdom, congratulating each other for developing a practice. What's funny about that is if you look at my Reddit account. A lot of the comments are just what you described. You know, someone posted a picture of their dog. All right, cute dog. You know, that's great. You know, 
or something along those lines, you know, whatever the post happens to be. That's how I do Reddit, but it's I'm in the minority by far. Uh-huh. Funny thing yeah. about that, I have been on a couple of dog sites and and uh, and animal sites, and that's the only place where I see wholesome comments. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, you know, I, I just used the dog example because it came to, to mind, but I mean, I might also do it for something more serious. You know, someone writes about losing a parent or something, and I might write, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, um, you know, good luck with everything, you know, something along those lines. Um, cause there's a lot of more serious reddits too, but, um, generally speaking, I try to be wholesome on social media, um, and, uh, social media often does not nurture that kind of attitude at all. You know, it does not, um, it does not give incentives to act in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, those types of comments usually do not rise to the top, you know? Um, but the person that made the post might appreciate it nonetheless, which is what's important. So. That's, the important that's, that's the important thing. Well, you can also see that media, for instance, all of the news, cable news, TV news, uh, news that is, um, was cable and is now internet, is always critical thinking. Their job is critical thinking. If they had wholesome stuff on it, nobody would listen. Nobody wants wholesome for some reason in our society. They're always looking for at least give me some good news about my team and bad news about their team. Yep, yep, very true. The the media uh, makes money off of the unwholesome. Mm-hmm. That's the truth of it. And they make a lot more off that than they do off of positive uh, material and content. Uh-huh. They even have a line that's, uh, that, that says it all, and that is what le- what bleeds leads. Exactly. Yep. Yep. It's uh, there's a book by the journalist Matt Taibbi. He he. Uh, it's reporting on uh, how the media industry works. The name of the book says it all. Just hate ink. <laughs> right. And so uh, when students begin to realize that that is the ocean that we are born in, swim in, live in our whole lives and die in, that world of criticism, that world of critical thinking that the Buddha would call unwholesome thought. When we recognize that and we begin to practice wholesome thought, you can find that you can get yourself into very nice states. That the first jhana is absolutely available, but the important point is we have to remove those critical hindering thoughts, have to be gone. That's the first first thing that has to be done. So, uh, I I have a comment or question. If if mm -hmm. you wouldn't mind, if you'd like to continue, feel free. But um, go ahead. um, Okay, sure. So, a couple of comments. So. Um, one is that, uh, given the times we live in right now where people are isolated, you know, socially distanced, et cetera, um, you know, I think many people, myself included, have been spending a lot more time in the media world or with their devices, you know, than they would have before the pandemic. 
Um, mm. So I think that's created a lot of negativity in our society. People just on their phones all day. Um, and it was it, it was bad before, but I think it's gotten maybe 20% worse, 30% worse. And it was already quite bad before this. But mm-hmm. um, so that's one comment. But a question. Um, so when I did my former practice, which was kind of a uh, Ramana Maharshi more style of just focusing on I am, and there was no instruction with respect to how to um, how to address the content of one's thoughts. You know, it was just kind of focus on I am, which was quite a pleasant practice, but it would often take me 45 minutes to actually get to the pleasant part of the practice, you know, and, mm-hmm. and thoughts would be coming in and out, and I would just kind of, I wouldn't be upset that there were thoughts. I would just accept that they were there, focus on the I am, and it would be kind of like, you know, if you have like a big bowl of water and you had just been shaking it for a long time and it conti- the water continues to shake naturally mm-hmm. and the thoughts would continue like that and they would get slower and slower and slower until maybe the 45-minute mark where it comes to a still. But what was interesting with this method is it would just go right to it. You know, it was just like, okay, <laughs> you know. And that was very nice because I'm so used to having to wait for the meditation to actually start to take effect, you know. Right. Exactly. Congratulations again. You're getting it. That's the whole point. Some students will practice correctly and some will continue to do. They call and they listen and then they go do what they were already doing. (laughs) Sure. Well, thank you for the instruction because it really helped. Well, it's not mine. I didn't invent it. But in fact, um, it took a long time for me to actually figure it out, even when I had excellent teachers telling me. (laughs) Hmm. I was one of the slow ones, too. And so, so, go ahead. Okay, so a few things. So one is, um, you know, I have a meditation app, and the only reason I use it is for the timer and because it tracks all my meditation history, which is just kind of nice to look at sometimes. Um, But, you know, this was my first meditation, I think, in about a week or so. Um, And what was interesting about that is over the prior week, I had been speaking with you and we had been discussing many different things, whether it was movies or whatever, (laughs) whatever, you know. And when I sat down to finally sit, a lot of your lessons I had kind of incorporated into the meditation. And so it was much more effective, um, which was really interesting um, to see that process unfold. It's like, it's like partly I didn't even realize I was getting meditation instructions to some extent, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, it felt like we were talking about the Dharma, which is great, but there would be some meditation instruction kind of behind that, that I was fortunately able to see, which was, which was nice. Um, actually, that's a topic of conversation that, that I've had with Achan Po. Hmm. Uh, to always advertise that this is Dhamma, that uh, we don't teach meditation. Sure. We teach the Dhamma. And that the, and that the Dhamma 
is um, hinged upon dukkha, dukkha naroda, which immediately can be translated after you, because we've talked about it already, immediately translated into unwholesome thoughts, wholesome thoughts. Mm -hmm. And that's about all there is to it, is to monitor and make sure that the thoughts that we have are wholesome. Now, one thing about that 45-minute mark that you were uh, talking about, uh, that's, that's well known. That is very, very well known. And so this is part of the reason why students have wanted to build up amount of time is that yeah. they want to sit with an agitated mind long enough for it to settle down so that they can get something out of the meditation. Right, and, which and, also, yeah. <laughs> while at the same time they're sitting there agitating their mind with unwholesome thoughts. Yeah, and it makes you not want to meditate because... That's one of the unwholesome thoughts. Meditation, <laughs> and then 15 minutes of bliss, it's like, well, the bliss was nice. But I had uh, I had to, you know, swim through shit to get there, and it's like, you know, do I want to spend my day doing that or going to the gym or something? <laughs> you know what I mean? Exactly. And, um, yeah. Well, it's even worse. It's even worse in the sense of this, and and that is is that generally when people are are wading through that pile of shit they're not actually practicing correctly at all. For instance, they're not breathing well. They're not removing unwholesome thoughts. And because they're not breathing well, and they're sitting there trying to do something uh, repetitive, guess what? The mind will get tired. We already know all about in Western psychology and, and Western education the concept of um, uh, attention span. And that one of the qualities that we have noted over over time, in fact, it's quite obvious that uh, attention span will then for an entire audience and a speaker, if that like a church, if a uh, normally sermons and the in the Baptist church last for 20 minutes, they know that. But if the sermons would go 20 minutes for a while and then 25 minutes for a while and then 30 minutes for a while, over the course of a year, they could build up to a 45 minute and then the people would then start to feel the bliss that they came to church to feel. Sure. Isn't that amazing? And that happens also uh, because of our attention span that basically at that 45 minute mark or sometime in that area, is when the ordinary mind gets tired. And one of the things that it gets tired doing, it gets tired with all the critical stirring and all the swimming in the shit. And so we just kind of relax in that sea of shit. And because of it, it's no longer shit. It just, you know, and just we kind of fall into that, that kind of state. Okay, uh, this is what people will call deep meditation. Sure. Right. But it's unnecessarily deep. Unnecessarily deep. 
And yep. not only that, but look at all the digging we had to do and all the shit we had to swim through <laughs> to get there. When in fact, the whole point of the teachings of the Buddha is to get rid of the shit immediately. Come out right. of the unwholesome. Um, right. In my experience today, you know, there was the comment that you've made, I think, in several podcasts or conversations or whatnot, which is that it's good in the beginning, good in the middle, good in the end. Mm-hmm. And when you said that, it sounded like a little bit like either a koan of some sort or fake advertising. Uh-huh. <laughs> Where it's like, you know, maybe it is kind of good, but it's not really that good, you know, in the beginning, you know, which has been my experience with meditation, is that it's it's sometimes it's okay, but it's generally not very good at the beginning, you know. And it's not really till the end that it's good. But today it was good at the beginning, it was good in the middle, <laughs> it was good in the end. You know, and, and that was great, you know. Like, I understood what you were talking about. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Uh, actually, I just ran across that one phrase yet again in a suit I was reading last night. Hmm. So that one phrase, good in the beginning, good in the middle, and good in the end, is just populated many times. Uh, that would actually be a good research project from some enterprising um, uh, one who is really into the suttas, is to start recording when he run across that one particular phrase, or we could do that with a whole bunch of topics, because the even though um, uh, the Tripitaka is a whole bookshelf or a bookcase full of books, the Dhamma is actually quite small, and that much of what the Tripitaka is about is about the stories that back up the, the the teachings. So there'll be a whole story about, let's say, Katasi Gautama, where she's carrying a dead baby, trying to get <clears throat> some magical person to help her to cure it. She eventually gets to the Buddha and he says, okay, I need 10 anise seeds or mustard seeds from 10 different households that, one. that have yep. never had. Okay, so, but the Dhamma in there is very small, but this long story about her um, eventually putting down that baby uh, is the essence of the of the suttas. Uh, but we can bring stories into the present day. Like people, they don't know about a woman 2,500 years ago carrying a dead baby around. That just sounds so ridiculous. Nobody would do that nowadays. And right. yet people will sit and watch Fox News <laughs> doing exactly the same thing that they're trying to teach them in uh, uh, the uh, uh, Kasigatami Sutta. This is a drop those dead babies. <laughs> sure, sure. Shut them down. Okay. Tr- for example, Trump is out of office. He's a dead baby now. Shut him down. <laughs> yeah. So, so I have another question. So one thing I've, I've noticed is, you know, when I first began the, the meditative aspect of this practice, and what I mean by that is the meditation outside of the meditation, mm-hmm. you know, like, like outside of the sitting practice, going through my day. This is um, when it becomes a Dhamma practice. It's not meditation at all. Right. Meditation yeah, is my, when you sit down uh, in seclusion. But when sure. you get up yeah. out of the seclusion, now you're in Dhamma. We live in a sea of Dhamma. Sure. And so my question was, um, you know, I, I, I've noticed there's a difference 
between um, sometimes all of the tendency to instead of saying grabbing the restlessness, saying oh there you are again, there's the restlessness, where where I will be lazy mentally and just be like restlessness, and then be like okay everything's great you know, and I notice there's actually a difference you know between doing that and if I actually seize the restlessness and I'm like oh. There it is again. Got it. You know, and then return to a wholesome thought, you know, of, you know, this is fine right now. That seems to have a better effect than just labeling it for what it is, the restlessness alone Mm. with no emotion and then going to this is fine. That seems to me to be not as not as vivifying. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that, because you're yeah. actually now leading into the topic that we started into before we turned the video recorder on, and that is back to Mahasi. Okay. okay. All right. So back to Mahasi, uh, I ran across it on the internet, an old book that he had written that was eventually translated into English in 1965. I don't remember the name of it, but the important point was is that it was um, it followed along in a format of Sutta number 24, which is the um, chariot race. And it also, because it does, follows the same format as the Vasudhimaga, because the entire Vasudhimaga is laid out that way. And so, um, uh, just as kind of a side note, let's talk about that Sutta and what's in it. Because it actually has the entire path laid out is exactly how practice is to be done. Now, the important thing is, is that this is um, a sutta that fits in directly, dovetails into sutta number 48, also in the Majjhima Nikaya, because it also has seven steps, but here the seven steps are to Sotapan, to where in the uh, sutta number 24, the um, chariot race, the seven steps there are for the entire show, the entire mountain. Uh, and that uh, you can also see that um, basically that this whole thing of the seven in Sutta number 24, a certain little section of it is actually what is in Sutta number 48. And that's kind of mind blowing to recognize that this stuff is so well known that it was practiced and guess what it's practiced by human beings and every one of them who is a human being is going to basically go through these same steps just because that's the way that it is so in sutra number 24 which is the big expanded version of it it starts with sila to where the sutra number 24 uh, 48 doesn't it starts with already a strongly established practice Okay, so from that perspective, um, uh, we can look at that uh, uh, seven steps in the Sutra number uh, 24, and later we'll talk about Sutra number 48. It can't really be done in one talk. (laughs) Because it's got so many brilliant things in it. But in Sutra number 24, it's basically a conversation between a visiting monk who is a teacher someplace in the outer regions and he comes to town 
quick question before we begin. Uh-huh. Um, is there a, is there a good resource you would recommend for reading these suttas or finding them? I would say I would I would have to go to the fact that since Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations are are so well known and now they're being leaked onto the internet, even though Wisdom Publications doesn't particularly like it. In fact, there is a PDF of the entire Majjhima Nikaya by by Bhikkhu Bodhi. So because he's prolific, because he's common, and because also he started out with translations from Bhikkhu Nanamali, who has uh, who had a talent of very flowery, beautiful language. That hmm. I would recommend that one. I would recommend Bhikkhu Bodhi's. But the one that I use is Bhikkhu uh, Subhanto on Sutra Central. The reason that I'm using that is not because it's a good translation at all, but because the website allows us to, uh, to mix the Pali and the English line by line, a line of English, line of Pali, a line of, or a verse of English or verse of Pali, like that. Um, and that's what is really interesting, and that's the way to go to answer that question is, is that if you really want to know what the Buddha said, you've got to learn not only Pali, but you're going to have to also kind of almost reinvent the lexicon. Because uh, many times the lexicons uh, are wrong, and the reason that that's true is because the original translators had to do lexicons. They had right. to do it because they didn't know the language at all. They had to create the lexicon in order to help them do the translations. And to now right. everyone who is learning to do translations will use those old lexicons, and those lexicons were done by um, a Christian, not a Dhamma dude. Right. It was done for research, okay, and because of the soul. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, there's there's a lot of it in there. Uh, there's uh, that uh, the teachings of the Buddha have been um, thoroughly Christianized. Hmm. Why would I say that? Well, look at all the words that we know of when we're describing Buddhism. We're using Christian words to do it: monk. Nun, temple, meditation, uh, concentration, uh, those kind of words. Prayer, chanting. Right. I, I believe you. I mean, it's funny. I, I don't know how familiar you are with Carl Jung, um, but he would compare Buddhism to Christian, Christianity to Buddhism. Because, of mm-hmm. course, he was going off whatever the German translations were because he was a German. Um, and he would consider Buddhism to basically be kind of an Eastern version of, of Christianity, which couldn't be further from the truth in many respects. But, you know, he probably had a he was a very sophisticated thinker, so I'm sure he had his argument for that. But, um, you know, I, I think how, however his argument has been represented, um, it's been, you know, it's they're very different. They're very okay. different. Yep. So anyway, that's that's the, uh, uh, the the short answer to your question is start with Bhikkhu Bodhi and wind up in the Pali. Well, I, I don't know. The Pali would take me a really long time to ever get to, but it's a nice aspiration. Hey, I'm 75 that. and still learning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so, and 15 uh, years ago, I published a book on chanting oh, in well. Pali. Well, I'm, I'm not aware of that. Quite cool. So, 
Um, back to that sutta number 24. It's actually a conversation between a monk who um, was a well-known teaching monk in a far-flung uh, district and um, Sariputta. Now, this guy knew who Sariputta was because of reputation and whatnot, but Sariputta didn't know this guy. And so after they met, Sariputta is going to give him a little test. Okay, so this is actually a kind of a test between two old masters, one recognized and the other one uh, unknown. And so he's being tested. And this is actually um, true in the sense that uh, with nobles, it takes one to know one. It takes a noble to know a noble. Well, ordinary people may not recognize a noble as noble. But, but not, not to interrupt, but in rabbinical school, it's actually the same. You're not allowed to be a rabbi unless another rabbi says you're a rabbi. Although oh. it's a little, it's a little different because a noble doesn't declare someone a noble per se, but you need not in to public. Know that one is not yeah, in yeah. public. Or if right. it's in public, it's done in code. Sure, and with the rabbis, it's all private. You know, I mean, not, it's all public. I mean, it's all public, which is very different, but it's similar idea, you know. Mm -hmm. which, um, so, yeah. so here is then um, a, a way of testing. Uh, because, uh, well, go one ahead. One last point before we get to that. I think it's actually interesting to compare Judaism to Buddhism in some respects because Judaism doesn't try to convert anyone you know and there's kind of this notion of nobles in a sense although it's a very different notion you mm -hmm. know the Jewish maybe it's not so different maybe if you take a little bit of the magic thinking out of it they begin to look yeah. very close alike yeah that would be interesting that would be something to look into but then I'm, I'm half Jewish by the way so that's my education there but um anyhow please continue Sorry i assume that it's on your father's side it is yep easy right. guess what, what? with a last name like going <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> there you go yeah i was gonna say wow you must be able to read minds or something you know <laughs> it's called uh, it's called uh, uh clairvoyance yep seeing clearly and clairvoyance is not necessarily magical. Hmm. It's, it's observational. Interesting. Another yeah, word yeah. for clairvoyance is wisdom, hmm. which means to, uh, to, to look and to see, but not just to see what's happening, but to see the trajectory of things. Hmm. An example of that would be when you're on a gun range, everyone at that gun range is very, very interested in which direction every gun there is pointed. Sure. Okay. But in normal life, people don't look at what, where uh, all of our mental guns are pointed. Because if we point at something, it may go off. Sure. Okay, so this is back to the whole idea then of wholesome and unwholesome thoughts. Holster your weapons. <laughs> Don't wave them around. <laughs> sure. So back to this sutta now. Um, 
the the first question actually sets the tone and that a lot of people would answer this question yes but this question was answered no by this guy and that is uh basically about the uh, about the point of sila uh the value or the uh what is uh is sila uh important and valuable is it the path and the answer to that is no and quick question, sila means defilement, correct? See, well, actually, the word sila uh, is as close to the translation uh, backwards as sin would be in the Christian uh, uh, world. So one sila is one's morality. We can use words like morality and virtue and all of these really old words. We don't really have any. Uh, maybe the modern word would be ethics. Okay, but um, all in all, together, um, it is physically, the individual physically restrains himself from acting upon his wrong thoughts. Mm. That there you are waving your gun around, but don't pull the trigger. Mm. Okay, so that's Siva, that's the, uh, that's the first step. Uh, and I'm, when I say first step, that was the first question, but we'll get into why it's the first step later. Uh, the second one uh, gosh, I even I don't even remember. I remember the third. Oh, yes. Um, it goes like this. Uh, they also the word that makes that makes many Westerners confused is that it kind of talks about the perfection of sila. So is in fact perfection of, of sila or uh, purity. I think in fact the word is purity. Purity of sila is the question. And this uh, uh, visiting monk says no. And then the second one is um, to clean out the mind, the purity of the mind which now we're talking about uh, removing unwholesome thoughts and putting in wholesome thoughts, but it doesn't say there. Uh, uh, so it's talking about purity of mind. Um, and then the third step is knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path. Now this is doubt, because when we know how to clean out the mind, we know how to behave ourselves with sila, we know how to clean out the mind, and we have knowledge and vision of what is and what is not the path, then that begins to put us at the stage of sotapan. That's an important point, uh, because uh, this is the full eradication of doubt, and as you've probably heard, there are three fetters in the beginning. And that is personality vu, attachments to rites, rules, and rituals, or siva bhata paramasa, and doubt. So now here is step three in this uh, chariot relay race. Um, it is fixed at uh, this point is, is that when one has knowledge and vision of what is and is not the path, has already been able to clean out his mind and has already got his uh, siva, um, up to scratch, we'll call it, rather than pure or 
um, perfect, but just up to scratch. When the seal is up to scratch and when our um, uh, purification of uh, uh, the mind, which also, by the way, leads to purification of view. Hmm. And that person, uh, per, um, uh, purification of view is basically the coming to the point of not, no self. Because hmm. the views that we have is I'm important. I'm the star here of my show, and I'm also the victim of everybody else's show, okay? And when we recognize, wait a minute, we're just all in this together. This is not right. my private sewer. I'm in, I'm in everybody's sewer. This is a city sewer we're in. <laughs> <laughs> and so with that, um, comes that purification of uh, the eradication of doubt. And what that means is, is that we now have all the tools to live because we've got the path, we've got the mind straightened out, we've got our behavior going. And that um, I won't go through the sequence of events, but rather to go ahead and finish up uh, with this sutta. But first, let's go ahead and ask you a question. Sure, so historically, for myself, um, one thing I've noticed is I've often felt in life like I've known what to do and I've known what the right path of action is, but I've not been able to execute on that path of action. So, for example, you know, take exercise, which I know you ridiculed a bit yesterday, but, you know, I, I, I generally speaking feel healthier and happier when I exercise, right? It, it's something I've noticed has produced positive states for me. Um, and you know, and there's science about it, etc. And I will think to myself, I know to exercise, I know to eat healthy, I know to meditate, you know, to do these healthy things. And then sometimes I just, uh, you know, recently, oftentimes due to my job being intense lately, um, I just won't do it. And so I'll know to do it. You know, I might know, oh, I should write my friend from last week, you know, you know, I should have writ written him back, you know, I know to do it and then I just don't do it, you know, or you could say like, let's say you're an addict of some kind, like you're a gambling addict, you know, and, uh, or in my case, maybe social media addict, you spend too much time on the internet, right? Um, you know, not, it's not good for you, yet you still do it. <laughs> um, out of habit, so I, right. Out of habit. Yes. And the reason for that is, is that that's eventually what we're going to get down to is what Mahasi was saying, which is to seize it. That mm. the, the addict, uh, let us say the gambler, uh, does seize it when he runs out of money. When he recognizes how much dukkha it is, he eventually will quit. Some don't. Some will go into great debt. Right. They have not figured it out. But many people can go to Las Vegas their first trip, see the gaudiness, piddle with some uh, uh, gambling, recognize uh, what a sham it really all is, and can walk away and go home because they can see that dukkha. They've actually recognized it. For someone who is already hooked on it, um, he has to actually grab hold of that. 
Okay. But always this grabbing hold that we're talking about is in this very moment. Right. So you can't grab hold of going to the gym tomorrow. Right. You can only grab hold of going to the gym, getting up out of the chair. You can only grab going out the door and going to the gym. And so once you have that, then when you get into the gym, now you still have to grab that dumbbell, both with your hand and your mind. So a couple of comments on that. One is, is I think you're totally right. And, and you know, say, for example, um, let's say, like for me, I spend too much time on my phone, right? And I might think while I'm on my phone, I'm spending too much time on my phone. But mm -hmm. then I won't do anything and I'll continue to spend time on my phone. That's because you I haven't grabbed it yet. It, you've just yes. noted it or you've just uh, witnessed it, but right. you haven't grabbed it. Right. To actually right. grab right. it means to you will turn the phone off and set it down. Right. And my second comment was, you know, if you get into this, because I wonder if seizing and grabbing is also a habit and a muscle that can be developed, or if it is something that you get tired of doing, you know, and and that's kind of one of my questions is, you know, like the answer if I to that obviously time, is both. It's yeah. clearly both. You because will I, you will get tired of it the first time that you check it out because we as Westerners especially are overly zealous. It's almost like the first time that someone goes to the gym, they almost always overdo it. Yep. But if he keeps going back to the gym, then he'll develop the muscle so that by the time he's in the gym, the eighth or ninth time, he can easily do what the first day was a big struggle. Right. Okay. So that's easy enough to understand, but let's go through this in, uh, and finish the story and then get into the Mahasi because you kind of got a little bit ahead here. Basically, sure. what uh, the name of the, uh, the sutta, uh, the chariot relay, actually answers the question um, in a very profound way because um, uh, the answer to each one of these questions of not, is knowledge and vision of uh, what is and what is not the path is that uh, the purity that's the big one, or this is it? And uh, always the answer is no. And so Sariputta then questions him, uh, please explain. And he says that it's very much like a chariot race or a chariot relay, that the king will get into his chariot uh, from Saranath going to Rajjuri, and he will go to a way station and rest and change horses. And then he will uh, get back into the chariot with a new team and uh, perhaps new uh, uh, workers and grooms and whatnot and go to the next uh, way station. And then he will get new horses, new chariot, maybe. And now the king can go to the third relay. When he finally gets from the sixth relay to the destination of Rajguri, 
by the time he gets there, no one can say that he got to Rajguri by going to that first stage. But he can't also say he got to Rajguri because he went from the last stage to Rajguri. Right? That it, in fact, was this one plus 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 this one. And that's what we often miss. That's the actual very, very profound point. Let me give you an example of that. Aunt Susie comes over uh, to visit mommy while Johnny is practicing the piano and he's getting ready for a piano recital. And so mommy says, Aunt Susie, please listen to little Johnny play. And he plays that recital piece that he's been practicing perfectly. And everybody congratulates him. Wow, that's really great. I really like that piece of music. You did it beautifully. But everybody is missing out on the fact that that performance was just one of those relay chases. That they had to start off by getting a piano. Then he had to practice. And everything was a step-by-step sequence of events that led up to just that last event. But that last event is not any more important than any of the other phases because if you'd have left any one of them out he would have never got to the end sure and it's like saying you know uh, the the sunday game is won during the training season you know that's like another exactly right that's the mentality is is that we have to start paying attention to every step along the way yep okay um now uh, <coughs> excuse me. Mm-hmm. Bless you. I don't have anything to drink here. Tam? Tam, are you here? Can I have a uh water? Sorry, my, my pup just made a cameo appearance here. Um, <laughs> Any of uh, listening? So getting back to um, the point about this um, book that Mahasi wrote, because we've just actually been talking about the sutta that this book is based upon. And that the, uh, uh, the point that Mahasi was making is, is that every object that we take in what Westerners would call meditation or in the practice of the Dhamma, every object that we take, we have to take it by seizing it rather than just observing it. You have to seize that object, okay? And in the um, translation out of the Burmese into the English, they actually use the word fall on, the way that uh, thieves would fall upon a victim. And also the, uh, the translator used the word confront. Now, I wouldn't have used these words, but these are the words that are translated out of the Mahasi uh, that point that Western practices of Mahasi don't do 
what Mahasi himself taught. That's very interesting. That somewhere along the way, not only did the translation get a little bit missed, but in the practice, that perhaps um, the students who went to, to Burma didn't stay there long enough to get the full story about what has to happen. So when they come back, they're more psychologists than they are Dhamma teachers. Uh, so this is uh, part of the issue is, is that uh, if the students understand this from the beginning, they can make uh, progress very quickly. Is, is that each object that we take, we have to seize upon it, grab it, and confront it. Now, the most obvious place for that is the very first object that we take is the breath. And yet Western modern meditation practices says to watch the breath. The Buddha and Mahasi, uh, in fact, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is actually quite eloquent about it. Uh, uh, we have a video just recently of Alan uh, talking about Anapanasati for the enthusiastic beginner. And that's where he actually reads to me out of Bhikkhu Buddhadasa's book about how important it is to grab hold, to seize, to take control of the breath as our mm. first object. If we can do that, in, in fact, the way of thinking of it is, is that if you can control your breath, to do so, you have to control the mind. And if you can control the mind and the breath, that will give you the tools that you will need to actually seize and control and take over the feelings. So, and then that's why you ask just to make the breaths long, not to count them. Mm -hmm. Because if you're counting them, that's a passive activity. And you only focus on the end of the breath, the end of the in and the end of the out, or the end of the whole cycle. Whereas if you're focusing on the length of the breath, that's an active requirement. That's an active. That's an activity, you mm -hmm. know, because you're in control of the breath while you're watching the breath. Exactly so. Exactly. That's the part that's hard for people to understand. That we're actually talking about intentionally long breath, and on occasionally intentionally short breath. Now, when we're talking about a short breath, um, this is there's two ways. To look at it because both of them actually there's three ways to look at it one is to look at the short breath as uh just letting it go back to normal and it will shorten up all by itself another one is to do uh which is what uh achan damavitu who uh still teaches at what so and mo he's been a monk about 30 years and he's been studying the gospel since he arrived and he practices the short breath in the sense of taking in a lot of air in a hurry. But this is that short breath actually is hard. It's work. It is um, the kind of breathing that you would have like you were doing a hill climb, running uphill, not just climbing a hill, but running, exerting, or uh, running up the stairs of a 20-story building. And you know what kind of breathing you have when you're what they call out of breath. Right, or hyperventilating. It, no, no hyperventilating is when you get way too much oxygen. This is a breathing that happens naturally because of the uh, situation that the 
that the body is actually oxygen starved and is full of carbon dioxide. This is because we're getting tired. Two wrestlers start to huff and puff when they're wrestling with each other. All right, if they don't, if they don't start taking those deep breaths, they're going, there's going to be some sort of chemical buildup in the muscles and the muscles get painful and tired and weak. But if you keep breathing, then that will clean out all of those poisons that are, are coming from the exercise into the muscles, putting it in the blood and comes out the lungs. Except to do that requires new muscle work in the chest area. So I won't do it with you, but we'll, we'll actually do this sometime together um, for three to five minutes. But just for a few seconds, it would be the kind of breathing <sighs> Your mouth gets dry, everything, okay? Now, that's actually painful, but if you do it while you're sitting, the whole body becomes vibrantly alive, tingly alive. You're getting really a lot of oxygen in there. And this is really good. Wakes up the mind. So, in fact, this short breathing would be something when someone gets drowsy, to start taking breaths, to breathe a lot, to get, get the body oxygenated. Normally, when we're, yeah. normally oh. when we're drowsy, it's because we're not breathing well anyway. So now we'll do the short breath to get things going, and then sure. go back into the long breath. But in both cases, we're intentionally breathing, seizing that object, grabbing hold of it, confronting it. Hmm. You had a question. Yeah, so have you heard of Wim Hof breaths? No. So Wim Hof is this guy that teaches uh, a breathing technique um, similar to what you're discussing. Um, it's like a... And uh, it's freaking out my dog when I do that. It's funny. He's <laughs> running around. But, uh, I, right. Um, it's the way you hold yeah. your mouth, you're putting out high-frequency noise. Right. That's why the dog is freaking out. Not because you're breathing, it's because when you do so, you whistle. Yeah, and it's interesting, when um, you do the Wim Hof breath, if you do it like a round of 30 or so, um, I think it's 30, you then can hold your breath for like a couple of minutes, mm -hmm. you know, much longer than normal, uh, and I assume it's the same, yeah. The reason for it is because now you've got the oxygen, which means right. that uh, when, the, when the body gets starved from oxygen, that's when that uh, mechanism in the uh, anterior cortex will fire, and that is what kills people when they're drowning, is they're underwater and they can hold their breath, as long as they can hold their breath, they can stay alive, but when that automatic mechanism comes in, says, we've got to breathe, even if it's salt water, that's when we die, is because hmm. of that, and, and guess what, it's a uh, survival instinct, that survival instinct in that point will kill you. So, so um, uh, knowing that, we can uh, understand why the Buddha actually could figure out that why breathing was so important. And yet, in our daily lives, we don't teach our, our kids in school about breathing at all. Even when they're in sports, we don't talk about the breathing. It's only the experts in sports who really begin to understand the uh, importance of breathing. Sure. 
there, there's a guy that came out with a book on breathing recently that's been quite popular. I should I should check it out. But he, he interviewed yogis and uh, gymnasts and all these people about breathing. And I should really check that book out and report back to you on it, you know, at some point. Okay. But, yep. All right. So let's go a little bit deeper into seizing that object. Because earlier you mentioned restlessness. All right, we can take restlessness itself as an object, but we have to actually not just look at it or note it or uh, observe it or watch it. We have to seize it. Right, and one, one comment briefly is I think restlessness, at least from my current viewpoint, is, the, is my worst hindrance, is worry and restlessness. It dominates the majority of my day, you know, of all the hindrances. Um, anger is an issue, but it's uh, it doesn't come up too much, maybe a couple times a day, um, you know, or several times a day. Um, but restlessness and worry is by far my number one. Maybe doubt might be number two, you know. Various cultures have various specialties. Okay, and uh, uh, to be honest with you, uh, the Jewish group are really experts at worry. Yep, yep, totally. <laughs> and and doubt. And yeah. doubt, <laughs> doubt and worry. And worry but... and doubt can seem very similar. You know, I, I don't really know what precisely the difference is, uh, to be honest. Um, well, let's look at a little bit more modern tech terminology. We would call it stress and anxiety. And that one of the things that any um, Dharma practitioner will do is begin to notice that uh, feelings and emotion have both mental and bodily components. Yep. That uh, not only uh, when we're agitated do we feel agitated just in general mentally, but the body itself is agitated. And not only is the whole body itself agitated, but it's also uh, we can feel the agitation really, really strongly in certain parts of the body more than others. And that one of the places that we can feel that agitation, anxiety, is in, in the chest area, in the uh, mid midsection of the body. Now, um, one of the reasons why that is there is because there is um, a chemical. It's called, actually there's two of them. One is cortisol and the other one is adrenaline. And, the, and cortisol um, doesn't break down as fast. It kind of builds up. And so they've seen that over time, elderly people, part of aging is because they have high levels of cortisol in their blood. But it comes both cortisol and uh, adrenaline are chemicals that come out of the adrenal gland, and there's um, wiring uh, circuitry somehow um, between the, the glands in the back of the head, the pituitary and, and um, uh, the penal glands, uh, are connected directly to the adrenaline gland, so that our thoughts actually will start pumping just a little bit. Or if we're really terrified, it'll just flood the whole system with adrenaline. 
And that adrenaline in the blood then um, puts us in the flight and fight mode. Well, guess what? The meditator is sitting there, experiences anxiety, but there's nothing to flee from and there's nothing to fight. But the adrenaline is there anyway. Right. Okay, so what are we going to do with that? Because we have the feelings of, i got to go do something. Got to go, got to do. All right, and basically we can say that this stuff is a residual holdover from long-term, but not necessarily vicious, unwholesome thoughts. Thoughts of danger, thoughts of I got to get this job done, thoughts of uh, writing that email that we don't write, and all of that kind of stuff uh, will bring up this anxiety. And so the first thing um, that we're doing in the practice of meditation is learning how to control the breathing. And also by changing the mind, one's right effort is to control and change the mind. But that leaves us then with something that we can do to actually seize these feelings because we can change them too. The Vedana is also possible to change. And so we can talk about the Vedana in two different worlds because they have two different chemical systems going on. One is the feeling system that's associated with fear, like fear, anger, sadness, um, longing, uh, grief, uh, those kind of feelings. And then there's the other kind of feelings uh, that are not based upon fear. And that would be the feeling of satisfaction, the feeling of success, the feeling of security, the feeling of at ease. And so we actually want to seize our emotional system to begin to feel the way that we would want to feel in the sense of the feeling of those feelings of um, well-being. How do we do that? Well, one of the ways that we can do it is by when we recognize anxiety as anxiety, then we can begin to play with it as if it were a toy. One thing for sure about it is is that when a child is playing with a toy, he has the ability to seize it, to fall upon it, to confront that toy. I've seen little girls really confront dolls to the point that there's a leg in one bedroom and a head in another. They tear the thing apart. Exactly. That's how you want to do that, too. Yeah. You want to play with that anxiety. You want to tear it apart. You want to inspect it completely. Uh, one way is, is that as you're breathing in, does it get bigger? And when you breathe out, does it get longer? In other words, can you make it pulsate? Can you actually change it enough to where you can get it to grow or to shrink? Can you identify exactly where it is? Or can you move around with it? Can you make it go to the upper chest? Can you make it go to the lower chest? Can you pedal with it? Can you play with it? Can you breathe it out? Because if you can take control over it like that, guess what? We've changed our whole mind state from the mind state that got us into that anxiety into a completely new mind state, which is a mind state of being playful, being joyful. And so then now the feelings will turn into being playful, joyful feelings, and that anxiety will begin to melt away because, number one, we're not pumping more adrenaline into the blood system. 
And number two, adrenaline breaks down fairly quickly. Cortisol, not so much. Cortisol will build up. But the adrenaline will break down very quickly. And if we're breathing out the, the broken down amino acids that build up to make adrenaline can now be breathed out. And so we can literally breathe out that adrenaline. When we seize it oh, and take control of it, out you go. And so now the, uh, the emphasis comes on the out breath, is to be able to breathe that stuff out, to, to break it up, loosen it up, get it moving around, get the blood flowing, et cetera, like that, and then breathe it out. This is, um, uh, let us say, a Western medical uh, scientific way of talking about it. That maybe the Buddha didn't put those kind of things together, but he certainly put together that it worked. Sure. And, you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, if you wouldn't mind for a moment, I'd like to discuss the physical feeling of worry restlessness and how that state feels physically. Um, okay. And... It's hard to explain, and I don't know if I can properly do it justice, you know, but I will just attempt. So, um... There's you know, nobody it, judging it, you. That's critical thinking. Did you see that critical thought that you just went? It is. It is. <laughs> You're right. You're right. But I was also saying it with a smile on my face, so maybe it was... <laughs> not <know>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, not the most critical. And, and it's interesting because... Um, I think it is possible to be thoughtful and in a way that might even come across as kind of critical, but to be kind of joyful about it, too, you know, at the same time. And, um, you know, when I was in my ceremonies and whatnot, um, you know, they can be very expressive. And I would sometimes be critiqued a little bit um, for being too much in the mind. But... For me, sometimes the mind is a space of play, you know, and I think like, I, I think that's an important thing that's overlooked. I think sometimes we look at the mind and say, oh, you're thinking too much, but like maybe it's actually just a way of playing, you know. Um, so that's it, kind is, of it is playing if yeah. it's nurturing thought. Yeah. It's not playing if it's critical thought. Now we're into, let us say, you know, that they, they talk about it in, in schools nowadays, that there's two kinds of games to play. The game where everybody has fun, and then the game that scores points, and there's winners and losers. Right. Okay. So, <clears throat> nurturing thought is when we're not keeping score. We're just enjoying. Sure. And critical thinking is when we're keeping track, keeping score. Well, I don't know if I can tell you exactly how it's going on or not. Okay, that's kind of a critical thought right there. Among uh, some wholesome thoughts. So, wholesome, wholesome, critical, wholesome, wholesome, wholesome. There's a whole lot better than critical, 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 wholesome, critical, 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 you see. Sure, and part of it, too, is just my trying to be honest, right? You know, don't and, stop. And like displaying some humility, you know, because yeah. <laughs> like oftentimes people will just spout off about X, Y, and, and Z, you know, oh, I think this, I think that, you know, whatever. 
and they don't know what they're talking about. You know, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think it's good to be a little careful, you know, in your speech, you know, and and say I don't really know what I'm talking about, but I'm trying. You know, you know that can be, in my opinion, more confident and less critical than just putting it out okay. there. You know, sometimes I'll, I don't know. I'll, yeah, I'll buy that. I, I got no trouble with what you're saying. Okay, cool. <laughs> so. <laughs> So now that we've gone around the corner, let's go back and talk about exactly what you do experience when you use the word uh, anxiety. Sure. So when I experience this, it's kind of like there's like a, like there is a, it's almost like there's like insects underneath my skin is kind of the feeling almost. Not actually, but, you know, it's like there's like a, a little bit of a shakiness there, you know, and, and I experienced kind of a shakiness, um, kind of a sense of disquiet as if I have to move. Like there's this feeling of, I need to move in some way, you know, which might be just moving my hands to take my phone out of my pocket and play on my phone, you know, or read something on my phone. And then there's a little bit of a, like, uh, like, uh, like an unsteadiness, you know, where things are not quite like that smooth, clear sort of perception experience and is more of a little bit of a, you know, moving from thing to thing sort mm-hmm. of experience. You know, thinking about this, about that, reading this, reading that, you know. And it's kind of like a perpetual motion machine is activated, and it's one that I'm not happy about, you know. Okay. I'm not necessarily disgusted by it or overly negative towards it, but it definitely does not make me happy. And it tires me out, actually. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's funny, and, 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 and one more comment on this topic, and maybe more if they come, but, like, let's say, you know, one, one time I noticed, so it was on a Saturday, and I was at uh, my mom's house, and I had the house to myself, and I spent the entire day on Twitter. And by the end of the day, so I'd not moved anywhere. I didn't go anywhere. I didn't run any errands. I just spent the day on my phone. And by the end of the day, I was exhausted. And I had been on the couch the whole day. And I was tired. Instead not of Not just speaking, but tweeting. Not tweeting even. I mean, maybe sending some messages and stuff like that, but... You know, like reading Twitter, which can be very inflammatory, you know, and then maybe sending texts and that kind of thing, maybe some text messages, that sort of thing, you know, um, and I was exhausted, you know, and just that mental activity exhausted me, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I feel like I often feel like I'm more tired than I should be, you know, and I need more sleep than I should. And I think part of it is because I, I tire myself out with this kind of frenetic, you know, restlessness and, and worry, you know, which is kind of a shakiness in a sense. So, exactly. anyway, I, I, I hope that was helpful. And also one last thing is I, I kind of feel it in my chest area, too, you know, as well as my head, you know, and kind of my hands as well, you know, at times. So maybe sometimes my legs, like I might shake a leg, you know, or something like that. Well, 
Okay, so now yeah. we're recognizing that it's got uh, uh, some points, but if we start to look, we can find that, in fact, it affects the whole body. Here's yeah. an example of that. Go into any waiting room. That waiting room can be at the bus station. It can be at the doctor's office or many places, or you just see people standing in line in a queue, and you will see restlessness. People are not sitting still. They're not just sitting there in the uh, uh, waiting room. One person has got their legs crossed at their ankles, and one foot is just bobbing up and down. Somebody else has got their legs crossed, and that leg is crossed, bobbing up and down. People are constantly in the state of motion, and that's what, um, let us say, keeps us in activity or keeps us sped up, doing things uh, that, that bring on that anxiety uh, because something needs to be done. So here you are sitting in the waiting room, and you can't do anything until the doctor comes out, so if it's uh, or, uh, the nurse comes out. But we're waiting because we're in anticipation, and so you can see how much agitation there is. Another place that's even more agitation is when people are waiting in line, like to buy the ticket to a theater or something like that. And people are enormously agitated when standing. Um, and so this agitation, um, I've experienced it in, in a way, um, it has a lot to do with motorcycles. I've had a lot of motorcycles in my life. And when I was in high school, uh, I had a friend who, um, he had a Triumph 650 Bonneville and I had a Harley. And so we made sport out of frustrating the local police. They knew us. I've actually been in front of a judge because of this. Well. And that judge, in fact, recruited me into the Naval Reserve. Well. When he found out that what we were doing, because we can get the cops to chase us, but in those days, in those areas, we only had two-way roads, and they were on in cars. And so we could zip through traffic, easy. So we would zip up the road and then hide behind the gas station, and the cops would just zoom right mm. by. <laughs> well, trying to catch us. Yeah. Well, I recognized eventually that the re that what was going on was there was that I was absolutely full of anxiety. That that's what the racing of the motorbikes was all about, mm. and that the last vestige of that anxiety or that restlessness I noticed. Here on this island in the past 10 years, when it when uh, I was driving the truck and I, that I had to go, let us say, to pick up a student at the at the port. That that anxiety would come. And that if I didn't notice it, I was going to be driving that truck on that island the way that I drove the motorcycle in South Carolina in the 1960s. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that I would be literally driven, but um, by taking a deep breath and say everything's going to be all right, and whoever's at the port will wait on me, 
They would rather see me alive and arrive late than to see me bloodied but early. <laughs> Depends on the person. <laughs> well, but no, 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 vast majority, yes. I'm just being a little funny, you know, a little facetious, but yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yes, that anxiety can uh, can drive our behavior if we're not aware of it. So now that you're becoming aware of it, it probably is, um, whether it's strong or not, is not the issue. Whether you're paying attention to it or not is the issue. And people can go for years and not pay any attention to the fact that they're being driven around and being in a hurry trying to get something done when they could be relaxed. Right. Because they can remember to take a deep breath and to take control of that anxiety. Right. And it's kind of a revelation for me, you know, in a sense. Um, you know, and I've, I've often been very critical of myself, you know, in the truest sense, you know, for not doing what needs to be done, procrastinating, etc. And then kind of trying to get to the bottom of what the reason for that is, you know, and, and you can tell yourself these stories and the stories might be somewhat accurate, you know, like you could say, well, I have a fear of failure, you know, so I prefer not to take any action, you know, or I have a part of my childhood, you know, I was taught this, you know, by, by my parents or, you know, X, Y, and Z, you can come up with all these stories. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the Dharma approach, you know, as, as taught by yourself, is just to notice the problem, the restlessness, not to worry about the whole storyline of how that restlessness came to incarnate, which we'll never really know, you know, we'll never really know the full story, and just say, hey, it's there. It's a survival mechanism. And, and let's get rid of it, you know. We know exactly yeah. where it comes from. It comes from the survival mechanism. That 100,000 years ago, the world really was dangerous. It really was sure. dangerous. We lived in the jungle. And there was all kinds mm-hmm. of things to run away from. Now in our modern society, there's nothing much to run away from, but we have all of those internal mechanisms that come out of our prehistory. All of that stuff comes right to us through the DNA. It sure, makes us human. Sure, but you can also, you know, what a psychologist would say is, you know, you're anxious about work, you know, like doing doing the right job at work because maybe you displeased your father so much, you know, with respect to your, your work ability that you have this sense of shame so you don't do any work at all. That would be the psychoanalytic approach, right, which might be true. You know, that might be true. I am really into I am really into developmental psychology. Studied it. All of that kind of stuff. That's in fact possibly the best stuff that Freud did was the understanding of developmental psychology and what happens and how we traumatize ourselves as kids. Guess what? The Buddha knew all about it. That's what the polyword of Sankara is all about. Is all of that memory and stored stuff that was stored when we were kids stored in ignorance? Right, and, but you know, and so we ignorantly yeah. responded to our dad 
and then and then got into the habit of that. So now that we're adults, we're ignorantly responding to the bad when in fact God's not even there anymore. But we're still right. ignorantly responding in the same way that we did. And so the whole practice of the Dhamma is to wake up to that stuff and seize it, take control over it. So one thing I found interesting, you know, in my journey of like plant medicines, for example, um, you know, say if I'm in a plant medicine ceremony, um, is I will sometimes... Is that what they call ayahuasca and peyote and all of that (laughs) nowadays? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, plant medicine ceremony. There you go. (laughs) Um, And um, anyway, um, you know, for example, my very first ceremony, um, I, I had this feeling that there was a knot inside of me somewhere, and it had been undone. And I felt better, I felt lighter, and to this day, I feel that there was something that changed. But I cannot tell you what. I can't say, you know, I released this memory from my, this trauma from when I was six years old, or, you know, uh, something that happened at 12, you know, or whatever. It, it was, or something from a previous lifetime. You know, I can't tell you anything. All I can tell you is it's better. You know, and sometimes I think, like, what's more important is that things are better than actually knowing the full story of how it got to be there, which is, seems to me to be part of the Dharma approach, is not necessarily knowing the full story, but just removing the hindrance. You know, like, would you say that's correct or, or not? Ab- absolutely. In, in fact, you're touching on what the Buddha uh, referred to as the four imponderables. Hmm. The things which are not worthy pondering over. Hmm. And that if we do ponder over them, we're wasting our time because the, the pondering won't help. Pondering hmm. is a kind of suffering. Trying to figure things out that you cannot figure out. And that there are four of those things. And one of them is, how did things get started? We can, uh, as Western uh, physics uh, enthusiasts or even uh, Christian creationists, both of those groups are very curious about how things got started way, way long time ago. Right. Right? And nobody knows, so all they can do is argue. Right. Because nobody knows what how things got started. Well, guess what? We don't have to go so far back. We don't know how a lot of stuff got started, and it's not important. There it is in this present moment. Never mind what happened to it in the past to make it how it is right now. Here it is right, right now and needs to be dealt with right now. And so that's one of the four imponderables, is what, how did things get started? Another imponderable is the extent of the mind, the extent of the human mind. No one knows that. Uh, for example, 10 years before Einstein, no one knew of the things that Einstein could think of, right? And so in the future, people are going to figure out things that we haven't figured out yet. 
We don't know the extent of, of the human mind, and we do not know the extent of the human mind as it's capable of so off into the future. Uh, the, uh, Einstein talked about it in the sense of standing on the shoulders of giants. If it hadn't been for Newton, Einstein would have been out of business. Guess what? If it hadn't been for Galileo and uh, 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 some of the others, Newton would have been out of business. So we build like that. We build our technology. We build our human knowledge. Uh, and for that reason, we don't know the end of it. We don't know the extent of it. But generally, we don't even know the extent of what our friends are capable of, nor do they. That no one knows the extent of the capabilities of the human mind which would be then like the people who do not know what jhana is will have a, a magical view or an idea of it rather than the actual experience of it once you have the experience of it then you know what it is until then you don't people don't know what the mind is capable of and that's one of the four imponderables another of the imponderables is is that you do not know what happens to a buddha for instance after he dies you don't know that but if you take it into the logical consideration, you don't know what happens to anybody after they die. We don't know. Sure. We just don't know. We don't have any evidence. And so because of that, that's not worth thinking about. And yet look how much religion is talking about after, uh, after you die. We've got this vision and that idea and nobody knows. Right. If nobody knows, that means that it is not scientifically testable, which means that it has no effect scientifically upon any scientific experiment, which means that it really has no effect anywhere. If something has absolute no effect anywhere, then it is absolutely irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Okay, so what happens in the in the beginning is irrelevant. What is uh, the human mind is capable of? That's irrelevant. We don't know those things. Right. What's going to happen there's after a, you die is irrelevant. There's a great Zen Buddhist koan that goes, um, what did your face look like before you were born? The answer is what face? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, <laughs> what face are you talking about, Zen Master? <laughs> right, right. And I, I don't know if that's the actual answer, but that's a very reasonable answer. You know, what face? You know, and it gets you to think, right? Well, if there's no face before you were born, then there's also no face after you die. You know, which means um, there's not much of a face now. Sure, sure. All right. So uh, when we understand these um, imponderables that way, uh, let's finish this off now with a way to answer a question. Mm. Let us take an easy question, a yes, no question. The answer is either yes or no. Did you turn the light on or not? Or basically, is the light on or not? Okay. There are six answers six possible answers to every yes and no question. Hmm. Six answers, not two. 
Most people think that a yes or no question has only two answers, a yes or a no. But then there is the more complicated one that comes out of Brahmanism, and that is, well, maybe it's both. Hmm. Or maybe it's neither. Hmm. Okay. Maybe it's both, and maybe it's neither. Maybe it's a mixture of the two. And then, so that gives us four answers. The fifth answer, which is one that we are trained out of in uh, Western culture. The one thing that will train us out of that more than anything else is a multiple choice test. Trains us out of that fifth answer so that we don't ever think about it. And what is that? The answer is, I don't know. Is it yes or is it no? It may be both, it may be neither, but the fifth answer is actually, I don't know. Hmm. And then there's a sixth answer, which is the one that we're talking about now. And that is, is that not only I don't know, but I don't care. Or that it's actually irrelevant. Hmm. So, when people would ask about rebirth, eventually I'll have to get around to that that's an irrelevant question. Hmm. It's completely irrelevant, and that if I spend any time in thinking about it, I'm wasting my time. And not only that, but I might try to imagine something and then cling to that as an observation or as a viewpoint, and now I've got a concept. So here's a question. Uh, do you think it might just be fun to talk about? Well, it is you know, when we understand that it is irrelevant. Sure. So for most people, you know, it's like not. We, like most we, people, we talked about movies, right? You know, the other week. I think it was last week. You know, that's fun to talk about. Why not just talk about rebirth in, in that in that sort of a sense? You know, in a carefree. You know, yeah, it might it be, it might not be. Because it doesn't mean a thing. Because it's irrelevant. And then it's easy and fun to talk about. But most people don't take it from there. You see, let's talk about how, how could it possibly be irrelevant. Well, we talked, I think, you heard last time about if you are in New York and you go to San Francisco, you are not the same person in San Francisco as you were in New York. That you do not have to die and be reborn, to be reborn. But you're, you're reborn when you get off the couch and walk out the door. You're a different person now. If that's the case, then it's irrelevant about what happens after we're dead because I keep changing. I don't even know what next week is going to be like. I don't know who I'm going to be tomorrow. Why should I worry about what I'm going to be like after I'm dead? All we have is this present moment. And so when we think about it from the concept of what we're doing this present moment, you're talking about isn't it nice to talk about rebirth? Yeah, but we're doing that in this present moment. And when the conversation is over, so is the rebirth. Sure. So, you know, it's interesting you bring that up. So I had the thought today, I had kind of the insight today, and I've had it before, but it was a little stronger today than before, um, which is that. You know, I, I love to fantasize about things sometimes. You know, I think many people do. Most of us do. 
at least many of us, you know, about, you know, maybe someday, you know, I'll have a lot of money or, you know, I'll have this, I'll have that, you know, that would be great, you know. Um, does that bring that up just, agitation? It does. Yeah, it totally it, does. Be, be aware yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny because I think rebirth is sort of the same kind of deal where... And many people it will bring up agitation when they start talking about it. Right, It'll bring right, up agitation right. if they say it doesn't exist. How could it possibly exist? Then they get all agitated. And when they right, say, yeah, um, well, we've got to be reborn. If we don't get reborn, then why should we even bother to teach Seedle? We've got to teach rebirth to these kids or they'll be misbehave their whole lives. Right. That's Vicky Bodhi's position. And it's hard for people to, to give up things that they use to justify their behavior. Mm-hmm. You know, and so, like, for me, for example, like, you know, I work a corporate consulting job, and um, I use that to justify, I use the potential future success to justify doing something that I don't really like that much. You know, I mean, sometimes I like it, but sometimes I, re- I don't like it. You know, it goes back and forth, you know. Um, but I use the, the potential reward, the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, as justification for, for some misery, you know. And so if I give that up... Good action is going to give good results no matter what. That's the teaching that our whole society is based upon the law of karma. Right, right. You and do if good I, things, you'll get good results. You do bad things, you'll get bad results. Right, and if but I it doesn't matter how much fantasy. you fantasize about getting rich, you might not yeah. get rich. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And if I give it up, though, as a goal, it creates a crisis. <laughs> and it's like, well, I'd rather not have the crisis, so I don't give up the goal, you know. Well, can you um, give up but, the goal? But, Never mind giving it up. See, you're still now in a long term, like giving it up means never in the future. Instead of right. thinking about dropping it right now. Who worries about or why care about whether I care about things in the future or not? Right now, I don't have to care about anything. Right, right. But at least and, right now, I can be free from that anxiety. Right, and that's a happier way to look at it because... You know, if you're if you take the point of view of giving it up, um, then that becomes its own trap. It becomes know, a should. It becomes a rule. It becomes you want to give it up. Right. And, Instead and of just give it up right now. Never mind about well, the future. If you, can, if you can give it up now, you can give it up in the future. You've already established that you can give it up. <clears throat> right. And it's amazing to me how subtle these differences are, you know, of giving something up right now versus giving it up completely, you know, and say, seizing on an unwholesome thought versus letting it just pass by, you know, just noting it, you know. Um, it's kind of amazing to me how, how these subtle differences um, can have significant impact, you know, they in do. practice. Yeah. Because you take yeah. one subtle trap and you, you feel beautiful, you feel fine. You take the other, which is the more uh, established habit, and we feel agitated. Right. Noticing that, we can begin to change these very little subtle things, and it is actually time itself. 
because we have been, um, let us say, put into the habit of thinking about that time exists. Sure. Time doesn't exist. Only distance exists. Time doesn't exist. The past doesn't exist. It's gone. The future is never to be. Whatever you think about the future, it won't be the way that you think about it. It'll be whatever happens based upon cause and effect. But what we have is that cause and effect rolling on in this present moment as this present moment keeps rolling on. There is always just a now. But we don't train our kids that way. We train our kids that there is a future. You have to delay your gratification. Right. Old marshmallow test, you know, all of that. So, you know, they should call it the misery test. Well, the parents do that with the kids. The kids uh, are in the store. Oh, I want this. and And mom doesn't have the money. And she'll say, oh, you have to wait. You can't have it now. Well, what's funny is calling it the marshmallow test makes it very endearing. You know, it's like, oh, like, because uh, marsh- everyone likes marshmallows, you know. So if you say, like, oh, you can wait for two marshmallows and that makes you a successful person, you know, that's uh, a great thing. You're familiar with the test, right? Marshmallow test? Yeah. Uh, no, not exactly. But I assume what that means is, is that if the monkey takes one bean, he only gets that one bean. But if you leave that bean there, they'll put another one beside it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's like very famous psychology, you know, tests they did. And I guess what they found is those that would wait would have much better life outcomes, ultimately, you know, and uh, along a host of measures, you know, um, following up well, with these kids over decades. Yeah. All right. So that that means that in this case, the monkey is actually thinking he recognizes something and now he is, in fact, seizing his greed. For that bean. Saying that. Wait. Wait. And. uh, So this is the thing, though, that this monkey has figured out that the experiment is set up so that there will be another bean. What if the monkey has the idea, oh, if I just don't get that bean, that sometime, somewhere, some magical new bean will be added to it. And Um, then the bean doesn't get added. But he keeps waiting. He doesn't get his bean, the one bean, because he's hoping for two. Which and that's that's the part of the experiment that they haven't been able to do because um, how can they train the monkey to wait for one bean if they don't give him the second bean? Right, right. Well, we and, train and our humans that way like with that. concepts. We can't train the monkey that way, but we train our kids that way. Oh, you can't have sure. that bean. You got to wait, and then you can get two beans, and then two beans never happen. Sure, and, and and that's much more similar to what life is. That's life, and right? <laughs> life is not an experiment from with monkeys and psychologists. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's done. The experiment's done with like two-year-olds, you know, five-year-olds or something like that, six-year-olds and humans, and they're given marshmallows. But same idea, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, you, you know, it is interesting that. Um, 
you know, you often don't get the bean. And in fact, if you do get the second bean, you might not even be able to enjoy it because of all the misery that you've incurred, you know, along the way. Or you might be old, you know, and... and or and perhaps just, small comfort. Yeah, yeah. And so you might get that second bean, but you can't appreciate it, you know. And you see that with a lot of rich people, you know, is they oh, absolutely. don't appreciate... Even yeah. two beans is not enough because they've been taught that you got to have a dozen. Wait a minute, two dozen. Wait a minute, 500. Yeah. There is a crazy story I heard a few years ago about the richest man in, in Europe, I believe. It was either Germany or Europe. I think it was in Europe. And he was worth $13 billion. And after the 2008 crisis hit, his $13 billion went down to $8 billion. And you know what he did? Committed suicide. Yeah, he jumped in front of a train. Another Anna Karina movie. (laughs) (laughs) Looks like we have lost it. (laughs) 